Certainly, I've come to realize that one of the biggest challenges in the Christian life is when reality and God's promises just don't seem to meet. They just don't seem to, to match up. And many of us have experienced that, and many of us are experiencing that right now. Many people have experienced job loss or a, a, a slow or a cutback in, in their business. Many people are very, very lonely. Many people are frustrated. Many people are sick, and they don't even want to go to the doctor. And all of these things, and much, much more, that we could go on forever. If we went around the room, we could talk about all the different things that are frustrating and discouraging us, but all of, all of these things and much, much more can lead us to a crisis of faith. But right now, the, the studies are showing that a lot of relationships are strained. A lot of things are just being pushed to the max, and that can lead us to a crisis of faith. Abraham and his wife Sarah had received a great promise from the Lord, or actually numerous great promises, including the, the biggest one of all, that they were going to have a son, and his descendants, there would, would come out of them the people of God, but reality told a different story. And, you know, being human, Abraham was human, I'm sure there was, for him and for his wife, a tremendous amount of disappointment. I know a lot of people like to pretend that there's no disappointment when they have faith, but, but then when, if you really get them alone or they get alone with God, hopefully, God's like, would you stop with the lying and just tell me what's going on in your heart? I know, you know, I want to hear you say it. And, and, and so there's a lot of disappointment, yet the Old Testament uses a very unusual term. It's, a different, it's different in the New Testament. He lived 2,000 years before Jesus. A very unusual term for Abraham. The Old Testament calls Abraham, in a couple spots, the friend of God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when things are going wrong in my life and, 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 and reality and the promises are just not coming together... I do say this to God. I know this is terribly disrespectful, but I do say this to him, and I haven't been zapped with lightning yet. I say, God, is this the way you treat your friends? <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? I've said it, I've said it on behalf of many of you to God. <laughs> so in, as we come to chapter 18, again, we're only going to do half today as in the because the second half of 18 and 19 really go together, shows us about their friendship. Really, in the next section, we really see a lot about their friendship. And the New Testament teaches, after Jesus came and, and taught his disciples and you know, died on the cross and rose from the dead, for, for a follower of Jesus, and by that we mean anybody who's put their trust in him, not just somebody who says, well, I'm Christian, I filled it out on the survey, but somebody who's put their trust in Jesus instead of themselves, that you are a friend of God, that you have a relationship, a friendship with Jesus. Now, friendship with God, friendship with Jesus does not avoid reality. In fact, a true friendship with God is open. It's very honest. 
And you will find that quite often, I find it quite often, that the Lord will often rock the boat of your life. You're like, what in the world is going on? It, it seems to me at times that God tests the limits of our friendship. That God challenges our friendship. In, in, in other words, to say, you say you're my friend, but are you really as much your friend? Do you really consider me as much a friend as you say you are? Really asking us, do you really trust me in tough times? Do, do you really, really lean upon me when things are hard? And so now we learned last week that Abraham is a hundred. Sarah is 90. They have been waiting for this promise of a son for 25 years. And so if you're waiting for a promise for 25 years, let's take the age out of it. That's a long time, isn't it? Wouldn't you be kind of prone to think maybe I heard God wrong or maybe, maybe it's not going to come to pass? Now let's put their age into it. She's 90. How many 90-year-old women do you know are getting pregnant and birthing babies? Not too many, huh? And we already know, we've already said in the past, that, that she was unable to conceive children. And so God comes to his friend Abraham, comes to his friend Sarah, comes to his friend Pastor Jim comes to his friend, you, if you've put your trust in Jesus. And if you haven't, you can today. And he asks a simple question, which is the title of our message. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Simple, simple question. Well, let's jump in. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord, then Yahweh, appeared to him. Appeared to who? Appeared to Abraham. So here the Lord shows up. Here I am, appeared to Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door. So Abraham's sitting at the entrance to the tent in the heat of the day. So it's hot, hot Middle Eastern sun, he's getting some shade. Siesta time. Verse 2, so he lifted his eyes and looked and behold. Just a lesson in Bible reading. Whenever you see that in the Bible... Whenever you see that it says that somebody looked or behold, that means that what comes next is important. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. Some of your versions say three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, doesn't care how hot it is, and bowed himself to the ground. Now, remember, this is the great father of many nations. This is a rich guy, Abraham. He's got you know, hundreds of people working for him, and he runs and he bows to these guys. So let's recap what's going on here. The Lord himself pays Abraham a surprise visit. When? At the most inconvenient time of the day, in the heat of the day. The last time you want to have company, right? It's like, not now, not now. I've noticed in my life that the Lord likes surprise visits. Have you noticed that, some of you? 
I mean, he really like surprise, I'm here. You're like, oh, not now. <laughs> not now. He tends to show up, for, at least in my life, or maybe it's just the nature of my life, when it's most inconvenient. <laughs> or the heat of the moment. You have him show up in the heat of the moment. You're like, you know, you're a parent, I want to kill that kid. <laughs> you're, you're married, you're like, I want to kill my spouse or your boss. I want to kill my boss or you are the boss. I want to kill the people who work for me. And the Lord's like, hey, how you doing? I'm here. <laughs> Let's hang out, man. Now, let me ask you this. Does the Lord expect you to drop everything for him? Yeah, it certainly seems to me like he does. It certainly seems like he does. I mean, you say, well, he's your friend. You got to tell your friend, bad time, friend. He's also God. So, so maybe the friend might wait, but God doesn't, doesn't have to. And um, <laughs> it, it just seems to me like he just shows up and he's like, all right, it's time to drop everything. So it's hot, it's siesta time, it's inconvenient, but Abraham runs to meet them and bows to the ground. Here's the question, does Abraham know it's the Lord? I don't know, we're not really told, maybe, maybe not yet anyway. To get, to get the picture, and, and it's important to know this, that many times in the Old Testament, God will take on a form that can be seen by people. Because that's the Bible contradiction people says, no one has seen God and lived. Well, yes, unless he takes on a different form. So there are times when he takes on a different form and can be seen by people, and he ultimately does it 2,000 years later from Abraham and 2,000 years ago from us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth when God himself became a man. That's what Christmas is all about. So some people look at these three visitors and see the Trinity, I think it's a bit of a stretch personally. If you disagree, that's fine. Don't worry about it. You say, why? Well, because I've read ahead. And at the end of the second half of the chapter, we see he, Abraham knows that he's talking to the Lord and two angels. So verse 3, Abraham speaking, he said, And said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and, or some versions say, that you may, makes it a little clearer, and that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread. Now, if you're young, morsel's not a word we use too much anymore, except if you have mice. People say, like, put a little morsel, you know, of peanut butter on the trap or something like that. And uh, if you live by the woods, you got them. I was talking to an exterminator one time. He says, if anybody who lives by the woods says they don't have mice, they're liars. So, so but morsel just means a small amount. So I, I, just, I, just, I just want to give you a, you know, a small amount of food. Uh, the idea is a snack. Sit and have a snack. So he says, and I will bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts, that you can refresh yourselves after that, you may pass by. You can keep going. After that, just sit, have some water, have, some, have a little bit to eat, and you can get going. Inasmuch as you have come to your servant, they said, do as you have said. What did they say? Sure, we'll eat. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Free food, you know. They'll, ta they'll take it. So 
I'm reading through the Gospels right now, and I uh, just finished Matthew, Manny, Moe, and Jack. No, that's not it. Uh, those are the pep boys. <laughs> um, so, but I just finished Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm starting John tomorrow. And there's always different things that catch my eye. And one thing I've really noticed is how often I have been struck by the personal nature of Jesus. I'm normally struck by that, that, you know, it's interesting. There's one part of the church that emphasizes him being um, a man, another side that emphasizes him being God. But Jesus was fully God and fully man. And, and so I'm really struck by how personal he is. I mean, he, he gets lambasted by the religious leaders by being a friend of sinners because he gladly went over Matthew, the tax collector's house, for a party. He, he went into Peter's house to heal his mother-in-law and then enjoyed a good meal from her. He, he, he went to Mary and Martha's house. He's hanging out there. We think he had Bible studies at, at Peter's house. You know, when he, in Luke 19, he meets this guy named Zacchaeus who nobody can stand. And he tells Zacchaeus, hey, I'm going to your house today. You know, after, after Zacchaeus becomes a follower of Jesus, he would even go, when invited, to the house of religious leaders he knew who hated him and wanted to trap him in his words. Jesus seemed happy to go wherever he was invited, but Jesus also seemed quite ready to leave places where he was not wanted. It's interesting about Jesus. Jesus would go into the most humble of homes, and he would go into places where people were living less than humbly, people who had money, as we would say. And see, the reality is, is that Jesus will enter any home, Jesus will enter any heart that wants him to come in. He's willing to do that. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's so important that you understand that. And, and when we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, especially when we look at the cross, God clearly wants to be friends with us. He clearly wants us to know him. Again, we'll talk more about this after the new year when we get into the second part of this chapter. He clearly wants us to be friends with him. And if we're not friends with him, and let me even clarify that a little more. If we're not close friends with Jesus, we have to be honest and say that's on us, that's not on him. It's not like he hasn't made the effort. Really, we need to, remember we talked last time about we have to make a response to God. It's, it's up to us to respond to him. Very sadly, when you talk with people who don't know Jesus, again, if that's you today, we're glad that you're with us. It's very sad that many of them perceive God to be uh, distant. That's why they really, I think, believe that, that gathering with the family of God, God's people who've put their trust in him, God's kids, if you will, is optional because they don't understand how 
our Father loves to gather with his children. Like any father loves to gather with his children or should want to gather with his children, people don't understand that the Lord loves to be with his people. He loves to see his people being together. And so, as we said, Jesus is very sociable. And Abraham opens up his tent, his home, opens up his heart, and the Lord is more than willing. He says, will you, will you stay with me? And will you be with me, Lord? And the Lord says, hey, I'm in, bro. I'm here, man. And, and, and the Lord is more than willing to be with him. You know, there's a verse that we repeat a lot. And I think that we've just portrayed it. And this is the risen Christ speaking. And he says this, Revelations 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's really what this means. Like Jesus wants to come in to be with us. And so the question, the soul-searching question becomes, will we let him in? And let me, let me even make it more personal. Will you let him in? Will I let him in? Is Jesus, again, I know this is a soul-searching question, is Jesus a welcomed guest in your heart? Or is it only when you want things from him? And not maybe when he wants to talk to you about serious things. Verse 6 says, so Abraham hurried. I love Abraham's sense of urgency. I think that's one time... One thing that, you know, with our Christian jargon and our Christian lingo, we, we, we lack sometimes a sense of urgency. You know, people are like, well, hey, what about that, man? Are you doing that? I'm just waiting on the Lord. You know? <laughs> what about that? Are you, are you, you know, doing what you're supposed to do? Oh, I'm praying about it. You know, it's like what, what? <laughs> waiting on the Lord is what? It's what we're doing when we're waiting to do what God has promised. It's not procrastinating on everything. Now, there's some things we legitimately are going to have to wait on, but a lot of other things we're not going to have to. So Abraham hurried uh, into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, that would be flour, uh, knead it and make cakes or make bread. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good or choice calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. What happened to a morsel of food? <laughs> This is like a feast he's making. I guess he's going to get Jesus and the angels so tired, they'll be like, oh, I can't move. I'll stay here longer, right? But no, this is a full-on meal. So he took butter, verse 8, so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. So what's Abraham doing? He's serving them, and he stood by them under the, ter under the tree as they ate. So they're eating, and what's Abraham doing? He's watching. He's watching them eat. He is the servant. He is the waiter. This is typical hospitality in this part of the world. Some of you, maybe you've experienced this from, from people who come from this part of the world. They, they invite you over for a snack, and they stuff you like a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> then you go home, and it's like, your wife's like, I cooked a good dinner, and you're like, no way. Can't do it. Can't do it. 
years ago, many years ago, I, I had a friend at Calvary Chapel, Oldbridge, and uh, he, he, his, he was known as Brother Andrew, and uh, he just called everybody Brother Andrew. He always called me Brother Jim, and he was Brother Andrew, and he was from Egypt, and sometimes uh, he lived by the church. We lived a little distance away, and sometimes I would pick him up, and we would go for Wednesday night communion together. They had communion on the first Wednesday night uh, of the month, and so I would pick up Brother Andrew. He couldn't drive. He was an elderly man, and so we would go to communion together. And, and then I would go to drop him off. What an event that always was. Now, here we have, it's, it's after 9 o'clock. He would, you know, like to hang out and talk, and you know, he was retired. I, I used to get up at between 4 and 5 back then, still get up a little bit later than that, not much right now, but just, you know, you learn habits, and that's what you do. But, uh, and so, We'd pull up, and I would know, here it comes. I'd even be sometimes like, why do I pull up to the curb? Why do I waste my time pulling up to the curb? He's not going to let me just go drop him off. And he'd go, Brother Jim, Brother Jim, come in for a snack. Come in for a morsel, right? <laughs> and, and I would be like, oh, my goodness. And there would be so much food. Like as soon as I would finish one thing, he'd bring out more. And he'd bring out more. And he'd bring out more. And I was much younger then, and I could eat a lot more then. And I would be there eating with him for hours. Poor Pam thought I was dead. She was like, where in the world is my husband? And um, I would fast on Thursdays because I would be so full from eating, and I'd have to get up in a couple hours. And Brother Andrew seemed like a humble man to me. But he, it seemed to me that he saved the best food for his company. And he would not eat. He would just watch me eat. Now, some of you might be saying, well, that's nice. He was a lonely old man, and, and you kept him company. And that is indeed possible. But it's easy to see how Abraham, after all these years, and all the traveling that he had done to get to the point where he was, even though we know that he had three or four or 500 men working for him, and then, and then he had their families and stuff like that. He was surrounded by people. But Abraham was the leader. And Abraham experienced, as any leader has experienced, if, if you're a leader in a, in a church or if you're a leader in your business or you're the boss or something like that, you know that being the leader can be very lonely, even though you are surrounded by people. Because you know as soon as you leave the room, they start telling lies about you. <laughs> That's just the, way, it's just the way people, well, at least in America, are. Or they start pointing out everything that's wrong. See, Abraham had left his home, remember, he went to Ur the Chalde he's from Ur the Chaldeans, and then he went to Haran, and then he's, now he's up in Canaan. Very long, long journey. He left his home to come to a strange land. So he left all his friends. On the way, his father died. We already covered that his nephew Lot is now living over by Sodom, which we'll get into next half of the chapter. And perhaps he's lonely, and so God comes to be with him. And maybe, maybe that's you right now. 
maybe you're used to being lonely or you've experienced a lot of loneliness in your life and this year has put loneliness on steroids for you. This year has been so incredibly lonely for you. You couple that with what we refer to around here sometimes as the age of distraction that you can spend your whole life looking at your little God, you know, your cell phone. And you realize that hours have just frittered away or the whole day has just frittered away. And so loneliness is probably not just some of you right now. It's probably most of you right now. And you can be lonely when you are surrounded by a lot of people. It does, it does, that doesn't have anything to do with it. As a follower of Jesus, I, I think it's really important to remember if church is going to work, you have to remember that you have each other. You just really do. You have to remember that. But here's the thing. And this is a, I know this is a challenge for a lot of you. But, but many of you won't pick up the phone to call someone. They say phone calls are coming back in. How about that? Like you have to teach young people. You know, we used to actually pick it up and it's a cell phone. Do you know what a phone does? It calls, right? So, but actually phone calls are coming back. And I have a list of so many people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. If I, if I call everybody all the time, that's all I will do with my life. And, and I won't, still won't even get to everybody. And so usually I'm the crisis guy. There's a crisis, I call. There's no crisis, I'm hoping that you're not in a crisis. Or I find out the hard way that you were in a crisis, but you didn't, you didn't let me know or what, let, you know, let, let us know here at the church. But, but one of the cures for loneliness is for you guys. That's why we do community groups, and you should try to get into one in the new year if you're not in one. We, we or service teams, that we, that we connect with each other other to help with a variety of things. Normally we would say it's to grow in our faith or to sharpen us, but now it's also to help battle the loneliness monster, which is actually pulling a lot of people away from the faith. But if you haven't been challenged enough, it gets worse. While I said some of you won't pick up the phone to call, and if you think nobody wants to hear from you, you're probably wrong. Here's the bigger challenge. A lot of people won't pick up the phone when somebody else calls. You keep dumping people into voicemail, and you wonder why after time, after time, after time, they stop calling, because they start to think, maybe you don't want to hear from them. But if we're going to battle loneliness... These are the things that we're going to have to do. So maybe you have a vision for your life right now of not being so lonely. Change the vision. Change the vision to picturing yourself picking up the phone and calling someone. Put it on a to-do list and don't rest until it's done. And if it's and don't just say, "Well, I didn't get to my finish my to-do list today." Put it on another list. Make your to-don't list bigger and narrow your to-do list to a, to a few things 
that are going to help you grow and stay in the game in your faith. Now, some of you might want to push back on me and say, well, listen, if Jesus would visit me like he visited Abraham, it would be different. Loved ones, I think I will disagree with you on Abraham's behalf today. I think he would strongly disagree with that statement, that, that if it was like he had it, it would be different. I think he would say to us, do you know how few and far between those visits were? But if Abraham would say to us, but if I had a Bible, remember, we're only on page 13. There's no Bible for Abraham. I think he would say, if I had a, if I had a Bible, I would visit with the Lord every day. I would visit with Jesus every day. I would want to experience his presence and his love and his friendship and his honesty. I would want to experience that every day by meeting with him in the pages of the Bible. That's where we meet the Lord, in the pages of the Bible. Friends, with a completed Bible, we can hear from God every day. We can, we can hear God say stuff and we can say, oh, Lord, my heart aches for this. My heart aches for this. And we can confide in him daily and pray daily and experience him each and every week as, as, as God walks among us, as Jesus walks among us, as God's people gather together. Yes, it's challenged now. But there's no reason why we can't experience that. And I think Abraham would say, I think you have so much more than you realize that you do have. In verse 9 being a good friend, the Lord rocks the boat and challenges their friendship and ours as well. He says, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Hmm, how do they know her name? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, this is the Lord speaking, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And some of your verses make it a little easier to understand about this time next year. And behold, remember, behold, something special is coming. Here it comes. Drum roll, please. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So when I come back next year, there'll be a boy. Then we get a little, the narrator tells us something. Sarah was listening in the tent or at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Who's him? Now, him would be the special visitor. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, or she laughed to herself. It's, it's, it's a, you know how you do that. Saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure or shall I have this pleasure or delight? My Lord, my master, some say, that's what she called Abraham, Lord or master, being old also. 
Now, now, many of you know this. I've been trying for years to get Pam to call me Lord or Master. She always says no, to which I said, Sarah called Abraham Lord and Master, to which she not so lovingly says to me, you're no Abraham. <laughs> and, I, and I hold my tongue because I've read James chapter 3. And I say, yes, you're right. I don't tell people you're my sister and not my wife, and you're free up for grabs. So, no, but, but that's just expressions for the day. Verse 13, and the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, sure, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Some of you have heard say, why did she laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Now, she laughs to herself, and the Lord knows her heart. Yeah. Really good if good stuff's going on in your heart, isn't it? How about if bad stuff's going in your heart? Ooh, not so good. Not so good. So, um, by the way, this side note, this is one of the really great reasons I like reading the Bible is God shows you a lot of the stuff that's in your heart, and it's a great moment to stop and talk to him about it. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, man, that's there. Get, please help me get rid of that. So lunch is over. It's time to chat. Abraham says, Lord, this was great. Oh, it's great. We'd love to have you come back again. The Lord says, Abraham, sure, sure. Don't you remember chapter 17? Once again, I gave you again that promise of a son. I'll come back in a year to see your baby. You'll have a baby then, a son. Sarah's eavesdropping. Why is she doing that? She's eavesdropping, and, and she laughs at the idea. Why does she laugh? Why does she laugh? We're not told. I mean, was she surprised? Maybe. Well, you know, the promise was so big in chapter 17. I wonder, is it possible Abraham didn't tell her what God told her? Men, listen up. Married men, listen up. Women, married women, cover your ears. Married men, listen up. I know many men who lie to their wives. I know many men who tell half-truths to their lives or omit key facts to their wives that is sinful. Now let's think of something else. Perhaps he didn't tell her because he chickened out. Or if we give him the benefit of the doubt, perhaps he thought it was too, might be too painful for her. After waiting so long and having so much disappointment, perhaps he was well-intentioned saying, I cannot put her through this pain and disappointment any longer. Maybe Abraham was beginning to doubt it. Maybe Abraham did tell her. And, and she had become what we refer to sometimes as an unbelieving believer. She says, I believe in God, but she really doesn't believe what God says. Or she was a reluctant believer. I don't know if that's possible. Or she had just become a flat-out doubter. 
And so what do we do with all this? We put it together and we remember that if we're not careful, that pain and tremendous disappointment and the hard realities of life, if we're not careful, can really mess with our heads and can really mess up our faith. Yet, graciously, the the Lord is saying to Sarah, I realize that you're disappointed. I realize that you're hurt. But I'm asking you right now to fix your hope upon me. Now, did you know that is a very, very big part of faith? I realize that we all try to guard and protect our hearts because we don't want to be hurt again. Uh, That's what we do as human beings. It's a natural reaction. But the Lord will come along and he will challenge your relationship with him, your friendship with him, and say to you, I'm asking you for your faith and your trust. I'm asking you to lean upon me in this very, very difficult time in your life. Now, I want to read something to you. You've heard it before. If you were here a few years back, we covered it in Matthew chapter 11, or the words might sound familiar to you, but I purposely didn't give it to the sound guys because I don't, I don't want it up on the screen. I don't want you to read it. I want you to hear it. You know, we, sometimes we use some catchphrases around here. We, we don't want to read the Bible. We want the Bible to read us. We don't necessarily want to read the Bible. We want to hear God's voice. So just relax a minute. Can you relax? How many of you just can't relax anymore at all? You just can't. You tried. You can't. Matthew 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Listen to Jesus. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, are you weary? Are you burdened? Is life crushing you? Is sin crushing you? Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. What is he saying? You come to me and I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you. If you know anything about animals, a a yoke, you put yoke two animals together. What is he saying? I, you know, they, that's how they plow in the field. He says, I want you to join yourself to me. Take my yoke upon you. Join your life to me and learn from me or learn about me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not incessant busyness, you'll find rest. In other words, you will find refuge for your tired, busy, weary, burdened heart. For my yoke is easy, he says, and my burden is light. What is he saying? You're not going to have to carry the whole world on your shoulders. 
because I am going to be there. I'm going to help you carry it because we're yoked together. And when you fall down, I'm going to pick you up. And if I have to put you on my back and carry the whole thing myself, I'm going to do it. And so here with this doubting couple, Abraham's like, oh gosh, Sarah heard what he said. Sarah's laughing, this is, this is not going to happen. In verse 14, the Lord comes to, the, with, to all of us with a question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? One more time, is anything too hard for the Lord? Right now, in this moment in your life, do, do you, how do you feel about that? Don't answer it yet. Is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? Again, about this time next year, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. So what does she do? She lies. For she was afraid, and he, the Lord, said, no, but you laughed. You did laugh. Sarah's lack of faith, which is good for us, because it releases one of the great concepts of Scripture, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for Him? Is anything impossible for Him? The idea, is there anything too supernatural, too extraordinary for Him to do? Now, some of you, your heads go, no, 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 no. But inside, you're saying, I think it might be true. But maybe before we jump to quickly answer such questions, we should think about it more carefully before we answer from our heart. You see, another big part of faith is moving from our own limitations into the realm of faith. Faith in the limitless God. Now I'm going to get personal for a minute. I think, I try to have a theme every year, and I usually don't broadcast it to anyone, because if I fail to live it out, then I'll have everybody reminding me all the time. So I think that my theme for next year is going to be, is anything too hard for the Lord? But I need your help. That doesn't mean every time you walk by me, you, see, you bark it at me. You see, all my years as a businessman, still am one, just sort of my hobby. Fortunately, I have great guys for, who are able to do the work. But in all my years as a businessman, a big part of my job was analyzing systems that would break down before they did. That's, that's what I really did. And, and I look around at our church, both those that are here and, and the many, many more that are not here because of, of what's going on with the virus, and um, I know that so many people are devastated by this year completely devastated by this year. A lot of people 
have moved out of New Jersey. A lot of people have just moved out of the area. That makes it impractical for them to be able to drive to our church. And so I look ahead to next year, and I realize that, that it's going to be in some ways, in some ways, on a practical level, where my business experience is not good for me, that's going to be, it's going to be an uphill climb in certain areas. I said last week, I, I feel like the church is starting over again next year. And, and I'm, there's part of me that is very excited about that. But there's another part that the hardest thing in a church is two things, volunteers and money. Those are the two hardest things. And a lot of people come to our church and go, you know, you almost never talk about volunteers and money. And I always say, well, if it's in the passage, I will, but I don't. But there's another reason for it, too. That has been very easy for us. This is very easy. A lot of times we have so many volunteers, we don't know where to put people. Or, or you know, we've got money to do things. And for me to be like, oh, this ministry is going to close if you don't give money. I mean, what is that? You know, let it close, man. It's like that guy's on TV. But I know that next year I'm going to need all of your help. You say to volunteer and give money? Well, yeah. <laughs> but more so than that, to remind me when my faith seems to be lacking, to say to me, remember, Pastor Jim, is anything too hard for the Lord? And you might say, can I talk to a pastor like that? You can talk to this pastor like that. What will that do? That will redirect me. That will redirect you. That will redirect all of us from circumstances to the power of God. It will redirect all of us from what we don't have to who we do have. Who do we have? We have God and his people. And I have to tell you that over the years, I have been constantly amazed at the faithfulness of God's people in this church. We, we publish a, a, a servant schedule, a volunteer schedule, four times a year, so you have it in advance. 15 years doing the church, that's 60 schedules. We do it different than we do now. Nick and I usually work on that together. We try about a month before to see where the holes are, and we are like, oh my gosh, we will never be able to publish. And we say nothing. And <laughs> the schedule just fills. <laughs> and we just laugh and praise God. Now there's a lot more holes because of all the people who, who moved. And, and I need to remember, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Now, now, don't get too worried. I wouldn't say I'm super, too super afraid. It's just not really kind of my deal to be that way. But I know in other aspects of your life, and, and those of you watching, many of you are very afraid of a lot of different things right now. In that sense, we can relate to Sarah. She denied her fear, but the Lord saw right through it. You, you can't lie to him. She forgot this. She was her friend. She was the Lord's friend too. And I think that maybe some of you today need to be reminded of that if you are a follower of Jesus. That you are his friend and he is your friend. And maybe you haven't spoken with your friend in a while. Or maybe the way you talk to him, it's just about gimme, 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 gimme. That's not a good friendship. You see, fear and unbelief moves people to do things they would not ordinarily do. And here, it, for Sarah, it moves her to lie. For others, it moves us to do what we think is right, which only watches out for ourselves and completely leaves the Lord out of our decision. Now let's just quickly put both feet on the ground. This does not mean that God will do whatever you want. This means that God will do what he has promised to do. Now, do I believe God makes individual promises to people? I do. But generally, I'm talking about more of the promises that he has said he will do and make for every follower of Jesus. God will do what he says he will do, even if it seems impossible. So what has God promised to all of his followers? What has Jesus promised? Well, he's promised the forgiveness of sin. He's promised eternal life. He's promised that you would rise from the dead if we respond to him by turning to God, turning away from our own way, turning to God to say, God, I'm doing it my own way and I'm done with that, man. And I'm coming to you and I'm saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to you and I'm going to put my trust in Jesus instead of myself. What does it mean for us as a church? Jesus said, I will build my church. What does it require of us? A response to be laborers for the kingdom of God in our world. I mean, that's what Jesus told the apostles. He said, the fields are ripe for harvest. You think, you think that all of your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors have no desire for God? Surveys say they actually do. They're just waiting for us to come to them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Jesus says, listen, man, the fields, man, they're ready to be harvested. Would you pray that God sends out laborers? That's our part, to be those laborers, because he will build his church. But there's other things in life that only our complete helplessness will enable us to see and activate the work of God. If this sounds familiar to you, for with God, nothing will be impossible, 2,000 years later, an angel shows up to a little teenage virgin girl 
and says, your old Aunt Elizabeth or your old cousin Elizabeth is going to have a baby boy. His name will be John the Baptist, or that's what we'll call him. And you, girl, even though you've not known a man, you are going to be overpowered with the Spirit of the God Most High. And you are going to birth the Savior of the world. Because you have been a friend of God. And people will call you blessed because of your son. And she's like, I, I, how could this be? He says to her, Luke 1.37, for with God nothing will be impossible. And here's what I love about such things. If God does it for you, nobody can take it from you. And, and his delays, while we think and people will say it shows his weakness, it does not show his weakness. It so, shows his sovereignty over world affairs and it sh- his control over world affairs and that he's not a man pleaser. He's not doing things, so we'll be happy with him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. He ventured into the unknown world of death so you would never have to. And he rose from the dead. How in the world did a small band of barely educated fishermen and tax collectors and <laughs> and all mishmash group of guys known as the apostles and one brilliant guy called the Apostle Paul. How in the world did they turn the world upside down? You know how it was? Because they saw the resurrected Christ. And when people said, hey, we're going to kill you unless you say you didn't rise from the dead, they said, I can't do that. You're going to have to kill me. Has resurrection and the promise of resurrection changed your life? You think you're too bad. Maybe you're here, you think you're too bad. You're watching online, you're too bad. You heard of Moses. Most of you heard of Moses. You don't know much about him. He led two or three million of God's people out of Egypt. How many of you think that's a big responsibility? It's a big responsibility. Moses was a murderer. He's a murderer. God says, yeah, you're my guy. I've got Moses. You're done. You're done with Moses. You don't, you're not thinking he's all it anymore. I can use a guy like that. King David, the gold standard of kings. In so much of his life, we see pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an adulterer. He cheated with another man's wife. And then he had that guy killed. God says, now I can forgive him, and I can use that guy's life. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He hated Christians. He dragged them to court because it was illegal to be a follower of Jesus in Judaism. Dragged them into court, stood there while other people got killed. Jesus knocks him off his high horse on the road to Damascus. Takes Saul out of Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. Changed his name to Paul, which means small. He says, guess what? I can use this guy. I can use this guy. Peter, big, strong fisherman. 
Jesus says to him, hey, cast your fishing all night. Knows the, says, hey, cast your net on the other side. Peter's probably like, listen to the carpenter telling me how to fish. <laughs> when there's no fish, there's no fish. He don't know it. And they pull us in a net. He can't even yank them all in. He bows down before Jesus and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, oh, you guys are going to deny me. He says, at the last subject, Peter goes, no way, man. I'll die with you if I have to. And he goes, hey, Pete, sorry, here's the bad news. You're going to deny me three times. And he did. And God says, you know what? I can use a guy like that because he doesn't think he's all it anymore. So maybe you think there's things in your life that disqualify you from being a follower of Jesus or being anything in his kingdom. It's those very things that make you something and ready for the kingdom. If God can save them and change them, he can do the same for you. All you need to do is turn to God, put your trust in Jesus Christ, and respond to the risen Christ. It's Christmas time. The time when we remember when God became a man. You see, Jesus had to come because our sinful condition was absolutely impossible for us to fix on our own. But even more so, Jesus had to come because God's promises themselves are absolutely impossible. Or at least they might seem to be at times. And when you think that they are, ask yourself, ask me, ask the people sitting around you, in kindness, not in snarky sarcasm. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's stand and pray.